What's up, everybody? Welcome to Stack and Sats, presented by Forest Based Mining. I am your host, Pamek Kovacic. Today, I'll be speaking with Kurt Wooker Jr. Kurt has a lot of differing opinions than most people do on Bitcoin. Uh, he believes that BTC is not Bitcoin. He believes that Craig Wright is Satoshi. But besides the point, we got into the studio, we had a good conversation, and we spoke about some potential vulnerabilities and criticisms of Bitcoin that I think are valid. I think whenever you're learning about something new, you should always keep your mind open and you should try to form your best view as rationally as possible. Uh, that can come from all kinds of perspectives. And that's really what this conversation here is about today. As always, this is not financial advice. Please enjoy my conversation with Kurt Worker Jr. I really do appreciate uh, having you up here. You know, uh, it's the Stack and Sats podcast presented by Forest Space Mining. And I'm super happy to have you on here, Kurt. Um, this is our first time meeting as well. Yes. Which is always interesting when <laughs> you're going to go and record, you know, an intimate conversation with someone and you just met them. So I uh, really appreciate your braveness there too, just joining me and having this For conversation. Sure. Um, I guess, you know, we're a Bitcoin podcast, so I always like to know a little bit about kind of people's background, you know, how did you get into Bitcoin, you know, what, what intrigued you at first and all that. Mm -hmm. So I was a, I've been a libertarian for a very long time since like high school. I'm 38 years old. And, uh, as a, as a youngster to me, like the government money and like monetary policy, like I was a, I was a gold advocate when I was like 16. So, um, my, my view on money and fiat money, like I had a pretty, um, like when I first heard Ron Paul in 2008, I was like instantly like that guy gets it, you know? So I, I was a Ron Paul volunteer, 2008, 2012. And, uh, so I just knew a lot of people. I was the guy who would go to the local parade and hand out a basic, you know, here's a, like, Hey, do you know who Ron Paul is? Do you know about sound money? Do you know why the federal reserve is, does what it does, you know? And so I met some people. Uh, I also owned a printing company at the time and I met a guy who, um, basically asked if I could print him some posters and he asked if he could pay me in Bitcoin. And I didn't know what Bitcoin was because it was 2012. And, uh, and he tells me it's, it's like video game money. So I was like, well, which video game? He's like, well, it's not a video game money. It's, it's just like video game money. You can spend it in you know, the digital space. Like, hey, okay, whatever. You know? <laughs> so it was a small job. So it was like not a huge commitment for me to accept like $150 of a video game money for a thing for a guy that I basically liked anyways. So it was like, sure. yeah, sure. Set, set me up, pay me in Bitcoin. And, um, and then I just kind of sat on it. I didn't do anything else with it for a while. And then my brother, uh, my brother's like four and a half years younger than me, um, got a job offer to work for a big libertarian podcaster named Adam Kokesh. Uh, and Adam had a show called Adam versus the man. And it was nothing but, him doing like peaceful resistance kind of stuff, like taking really stupid laws that exist in places and then breaking them with a camera on. So like, you're not allowed to dance at the Lincoln Memorial. If I recall, it's like mm -hmm. a thing that's posted, like it is against federal law to dance at the Lincoln Memorial. 
And so he goes and dances at the Lincoln Memorial and gets like the park's police to arrest him and like threw him on the ground. Like they hurt him to cuff him for this thing, you know? So Adam, Adam had a very popular channel t- you know, 10 years ago. Adam's still around, but he got uh, significantly weirder over the last 10 years. But at the time he was like a rising star. And my brother was super into uh, internet marketing and social media management. And Adam uh, offered him like, hey, Carl, I'd like you to be my social media guy. I think you're really cool. And uh, But the caveat is I, I would like to pay you in Bitcoin. And so that was the second time I heard Bitcoin was from Adam, who was a guy who I respected and thought was an interesting character. And I was like, okay, I, I guess I need to look into what this actually is because now I've heard it twice. And um, so then I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole. It was like, okay read the white paper, like Google around. I remember watching videos of like Roger Ver and Andreas Antonopoulos and like the kind of basic, what is Bitcoin? Sure. Conversational content. And, um, I, I just was like, oh my God, like this is it. Maybe I'm not a gold bug anymore. Maybe, maybe this could be money and, and, and all these, you know, other like revelatory things that people go through when they first learn about Bitcoin. And, um, from there it was like, oh wow. The, the creator's gone and like all this other like mystery and intrigue stuff and so it was like man this is like a spy novel wrapped in all this stuff that i really care about yeah and so i just i mean i spent i didn't even know like really really like the next nine months of my life just kind of immersed in all my free time like i'm gonna join every bitcoin group on facebook and i'm gonna join all like i'm gonna get into the reddit i'm gonna okay i'm gonna get a, i got a bitcoin talk account and like all these things mm. and so uh just that was it. It really like it kind of took over. Uh, I started mining in 2013. Uh, did a really bad job of it. <laughs> um, like I got GPUs uh, like right as ASICs were like starting to hit the market. So like when I made the purchase, I was I calculated okay I can make about this much a day. But then by the time I had them like set up, the difficulty had gone up so significantly. I was like, I'm gonna do nothing but lose money. Like did I do my math wrong? Like I thought I was like. Uh-huh. I must have missed like two decimal points. What am I, an idiot? And then it was, you know, just everything, everything that you learn going through all of that. I just was like, no, I have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's the basic start of my Bitcoin story. And I literally never, uh, aside from like, I got married in 2015 and I took like a little break. And then 2016 is like right when the Ethereum ICO bubble and stuff started to happen. Mm-hmm. And I started getting people calling me like, hey, Kurt, you know that thing you're always talking about? Like, should I buy the, you know, like the Gollum ICO? And I'm like, what the hell is an ICO? What is Gollum? You know, like all this stuff. So all of a sudden, like all my friend circle became crypto bros. And I, I had to like, was like, it's my duty. I must explain to these people why this is fraud, like why this is a scam. And uh, it got to be so much, so many people asking me questions that I started to flip on facebook live and then i said you know what i'll just schedule it i'll do it every day at noon for 10 minutes and i'll talk about what's the news of the day and then i'll take questions until the questions run out and i have not stopped streaming bitcoin at least weekly since and so it's been six years of me doing bitcoin related media and it started with me literally just saying "Hmm, facebook live's a thing like i guess i'm live that's <laughs> so, awesome. So here I am. No, and very much to, you know, the the origins of Bitcoin to keep it open sourced, to be willing to have these public, you know, discussions, um, to be someone who can also just, 
not hold your hand, but lend a hand. You know, yeah. if people have questions, there's no reason to blow them off. Like if the right. questions are curiosity, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's super cool. So it just seemed like from, from a very quick point in your life, you're given this task to, you know, speak about Bitcoin, kind of yep. get people, you know, listening, get them intrigued. Were you generally finding that people were people were interested in what you were saying because it was something they hadn't heard? Or do you do you find that like, you know, uh, as you learned more, you got to develop like a better kind of case for it? Um, so a little bit of a both and. Um, I've always kind of been like in my community, I was always like super active in my church and super active in school activities and super like I was always kind of the, hey, Kurt's here. Like now, like let's let's have a good time doing a thing. I'm just I've always kind of just had a big personality and a pretty big friend group, and I've always been super political and I'm always happy to engage in some crazy thing or like, hey, here's why everything you believe is a lie. And so everybody's a little bit used to me being that way. Um, but when it came to Bitcoin, it it was such a good real world example of like the free market solving a problem that I've been telling people actually existed. So like I said, I was a, I was a libertarian since I was a a kid Mm -hmm. and then, you know, trying to tell my friend, here's why you should volunteer for the Ron Paul campaign in 2008 and then 2012. So all these issues that everybody's like, dude, I don't, I don't know what the gold standard actually, like I get what you're saying, but what does this practically mean for my life? I work at the grocery store, you know? For it. And so uh, what Bitcoin did is it gave me sort of a like, hey, see, other people agree with me. And he, like, here's this evidence that this was a problem worth solving. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's funny, while I would get, you know, three or four people that would engage with my like, political posts of when it was Bitcoin, it was people like, well, here's why this doesn't make sense. Here's, here's why you would want dollars or here's why you would want gold instead of Bitcoin. Or here's why you would want, like, here's, here's why this doesn't work. Everybody, like everybody seemed to like, because it was money, every, like it just, it triggered, tr- triggered some little thing that was intangible about all of the other stuff. And so, uh, people would engage with my stuff rapidly. I mean, within a month, and in a month, I had done probably 30 Facebook Lives. And the beauty of Facebook Live, I don't know if this is still the case, but when you'd click go live, mm. every single person that you were friends with would get notified. Right. Kurt has just gone live. Would you like to click and watch? <laughs> and so, and I had a lot of Facebook friends. I was a very early Facebook user too. I, I loved social media as a concept. And so I'm, I had, you know, thousands of people that would be like, why is Kurt live every day at 12? And, and it would show you, you know, and. At first, it's like five people, but by the end of the month, it was you have ninety people watching your show, and like that's a lot for like just my friend group, you know. So, um, and then it just it just kind of keeps snowballing. Like even now, like I get like I'll be a guest on a thing, and it's like it got thirty thousand views in six days, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny because it, it's literally never changed. Like my narrative about Bitcoin has never shifted like it is x it matters because it's x and if you try to turn it into y i'm gonna call you out on it and that made me like i was like a hero and then it was like "Mm, kurt's a little weird and now it's like kurt's like kind of a super villain (laughs) so and i just think it's really funny because 
it like I mean, you can watch my content. My content is still out there from 2016 and 17 and 18 and 19. And so it's it's funny to watch like um, how much the culture has shifted. Yeah. And at the same time, like I've become kind of infamous. And at the same time, like also really increased like my people who, you know, are fans and friends and all of that. So it's, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> you are an untouchable in the BTC community. Uh, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and, you know, just like I'm going to interview this, you know, BSV guy and everyone's like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, luckily I have the liberty that, you know, this is our ninth episode. Sure. I'm not someone who has this giant head that's displayed and I need to make sure that my audience, you know, knows who I am and I would never kind of thing. Yeah. I come from Bitcoin pretty uh, late, mm -hmm. you know, 2020. Um, I was working at Whole Foods during the pandemic and I've studied, you know, about these things here and there. Um, before I tell the pandemic story, going back to what you were mentioning with why people get so like upset when money is a part of the conversation. It's something, uh, my friend Matias calls survivorship bias. You know, other sure. people call it survivorship bias. Yep. When you make money and you do the right things and you've made this money a certain way then you think that you know about it or you think that this is the answer you know or you're just blinded to what fiat actually is yeah if you're you know holding some more of it than other people sure so definitely can see where people you know all of a sudden put <laughs> yeah. their economist hat on but basically i'm working at whole foods i'm working you know, and I'm picking up shifts and produce and wherever just because it's chaotic. You know, there's people buying everything. And for the first time in my life, I saw scarcity in a way I'd never experienced. I had money in my account. Yeah. I could buy whatever I wanted, but that stuff wasn't there. It wasn't physically on the shelves. It wasn't an inventory, you know, wherever these marketplaces, you, you know, you're yeah. buying from. So that really scared me and it really had me kind of going back to like my younger, more like doomsday zeitgeist <laughs> days where it's like yep. you first learn about legal tender and you first learn about, you know, banking and fractional reserve banking. And that's kind of like where it clicked for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it started with Ethereum, ironically. Sure. I watched, uh, Lex Friedman's first interview with Vitalik Buterin and I was just like so mesmerized by the concepts they were talking about. And you know, lo and behold, I find myself in the industry and I ask all these people, you know, what do I say to someone who is like a BSV supporter? What do I say to someone who, you know, has these viewpoints? And no one gave me a good answer. Sorry. Sorry to everyone. <laughs> sorry to all my homies. Sorry to all my friends, everyone in the industry, but no one gave me a good answer. And this is something Lex Friedman talks a lot about. It's less in what questions you're answering mm -hmm. and it's more in the tone of how you're answering them. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. It's not true to me to just completely shit on someone for something that I don't understand. Sure. Like I said, I'm 2020, I'm a couple years into this. I'm... <laughs> A newbie here. Well, see, and that makes you special, by the way. Like, very few people 
ever get to the point of emotional maturity where they can have a conversation about something where maybe they disagree. Like maybe I'm going to undermine your fundamental beliefs about something you care about. Yeah. But like, that doesn't make me a bad guy. Like I might be right. I might be telling you a very painful truth. <laughs> and, and if it makes anything in your life better, it's worth it. I mean, it, even just the information is worth it. Not yeah. that, not that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to make you rich because I've given you some kind of like, Hey, here's some free alpha or, you know, that kind of thing. You get those guys who are like, you know, a guru about like, here's the product of a thing. I don't, I don't care what you do with your money or your, or your life or anything. I'm, I'm a libertarian, but the truth, the truth really matters. And so if you just give everybody the truth and let everybody make their own decisions, that's a good thing. And I get so many people, like I know there are people that are watching this right now, consuming this content as I'm saying it, saying, oh, well, Kurt's the biggest liar I've ever met though. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and, the, and, and it's like, no, you're triggered because my truths undermine some belief that you have. Yeah. Deal with it. Like nobody cares. Like nobody cares if you need to take a minute and think about, shoot, was I wrong about everything? Because mm -hmm. you might be. I've been wrong about all kinds of things. We've all been wrong about all kinds of things. And the only reason we got better is because at some point we either checked our own ego or something else checked our ego for us and we were forced to get stronger right. by dealing with whatever that truth was. And so I think it's very funny uh, in the blockchain space where we're supposed to be like open-minded and hey, we're, we're like this revolutionary group of people that is like super visionary. And like, but don't talk about all of these, like, but here's the unmentionables. <laughs> yeah, no, so, totally. And, yeah. and, I, and I'm, you know, I want to, I want to do something different and I want to, I want to just like provide a different perspective. And part of that is, yeah, I just can't put it to me to just completely ignore something. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm not here saying that I believe BSV is the true Bitcoin. I'm not here saying that I think BTC is the true Bitcoin. I'm three years into this experience. I'm speaking with you. You're someone who has something I don't, which is you were on the internet. You were in real time while this was happening. Mm -hmm. So you got to intake media and have discussions in a way that I just can't. Now, I'm a historian at heart. So this is really hard for me yeah. because what I found in this short 13 years of a history is just the most muddled, um, unanswerable kind of story. It's, it's not saying that anyone's right or wrong, but I think for only having 13 years of a history, there's not enough of a focus on these schisms and there just seems to be this overall narrative of like Bitcoin is flawless Bitcoin, you know, it's this, it's that, it's that it's hard money. It's what, you know, whatever it is, everyone gives you all the answers. And those are some of the things that you pick up to learn. But what intrigues me with where you're coming from is because you're someone who also holds an idea in my head, which is that nothing is sacred. You know, nothing is going to withstand the truth. 
nothing is going to withstand public discourse. So it's like, why not? Why don't we talk about this? Yeah. Um, just like, it's tough. You know, it's <laughs> it's a tough topic, and I want to come at it differently. Yeah. And one thing I've seen from watching your videos and seeing your presence online is you're dubbed, I don't know if it's a self-dubbing, but you're dubbed as Kurt the Historian. Yeah. Is that something that you kind of, uh, you call yourself a historian, or is it just, as you've explained things to people, people... So a, a little bit, I mean, as an official title, like, yeah, I don't have like a PhD in history or something, but, um, it actually kind of started as, uh, so I have, I have a couple of groups of people in my life that, uh, some of my close friends will jokingly call me Curtipedia <laughs> because, you know, somebody will start talking about just something and I'll just start rattling off facts about it. I'll be like, oh, actually, you know, or like I'll notice, like we'll be in a different country and I'll notice a building and I'll say, oh, hey, I read about this. And I'll go into like, did you know the Templars used this as the, like this was the first bank and this is all, you know, and, and they're just like, Kurt, where, like, where did that come from? You know, and, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know. I just like I cared about that thing when I heard it. And it's just, it's still in there. Yeah. And so you get those people who like my close friends will tell you, yes, everybody calls Kurt Kurtopedia. And then um, when it came to, when it, when it really comes to anything, I always, I come like by this process that I want to figure out like, what is the most conservative version of this story? And what is the most like revisionist liberal version of this story? And, and that's for all history, right? So imagine talking about like world war two. So, okay. We're taught, what World War II is in the West and, you know, the America came in and we friggin' won, you know? And like, yeah, that's kind of true. But like, how do they teach World War II in Russia? Right. Because <laughs> it's a very, very different thing to them. And it it takes a little bit of extra work to to not just have the, hey, I'm, you know, I went to school in Chicago and was taught the American version of what World War II is. And like, hey, there are parts of this that are illegal to talk about if you're in Germany. Yeah. Like you're not allowed to express it unless it's very specifically like regulated academic study of Nazism in Germany. Yeah. And, and if you start to, like they can put you in jail for that. And that's their experience of World War II. That's just the result of how that shook out. And then you have Russia's version. And then like, there's also a Japan version. And then there's also a version from everywhere else. Like, Let's go ask the people that lived in like some country that was like uninvolved. Like it, it had an effect on everybody. Like what does world war two look like if it went and learned it in India? Yeah. And, and it's very different and it's, it's the same with everything. Like world war two is a big event, but everything is this, this is religion. This is worldview. This is shoot. I mean, what's, what's a big issue now? Like, what is a man? What is a woman? Like th that is a huge political issue in the West right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so you need to like break down, like why has it become this? And, and there is deep roots to that stuff. So for me, I always try to break down everything cultural into mm. like, what are its distilled simplest pieces? Because that's what we're actually building on. And it just has made me like obsessed with history. So, um, because you can't you can't understand the context of now without understanding like what what about our culture is a reaction to 
the 2000s and the 90s and the 80s and the 70s, because it's not just in a vacuum that the world looks the way that it looks. And so I'm very much a, an amateur historian in many regards, but like I read constantly. I listen to tons of podcasts uh, and I just I just do it. Like as a child, I wanted to be like an archaeologist and then I, I wanted to be a theologian. I'm, I'm quite religious, by the way. So for me, it's it's like, well, if I'm going to read the Bible, I have to learn the source language. I have to read the Bible in the language that it was written because I'm just trusting some translator from the 1500s. And how do I know he wasn't an idiot? So you learned Aramaic is what you're I learned, saying? I learned <laughs> uh, Koine Greek I, is, is what I learned to read the New Testament in sure. its source language. Um, and so, like, that's just how I treat things. Like, if if I'm going to agree to anything as, like, part of my identity or part of my culture, I'm not going to do it flippantly. So that's that that's where it starts. <laughs> and then when it came to, like, Bitcoin, I started with Satoshi. I started with, okay, here's the white paper. Here's the way that he announced it. Is there a reason why he announced it that way? Mm-hmm. Is there anything intriguing about the date or the place or the, you know? So... I just read every publicly available thing that existed for Satoshi. Like, what did he say? Turns out the first like two years of Bitcoin was a lot of people just asking questions of Satoshi. Hey, why is it like this? Hey, why is it like that? Here's why I think you're an idiot here. You know, and like watching him have a debate or watching him do these things. And so I just committed that stuff to memory. And then when it came to 2016, 2017, like scaling war drama. And I start to see the people who are like, well, Bitcoin was always supposed to be X. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that goes against this quote that I recall. And then it would be like, oh, wow, that's, you know, your context is off. And it's like, well, no, like, let's go back and read it. It should take two minutes to read it. And then it would be like, you're blocked. <laughs> well, this is the, this is the religiosity of all of it. Um, so when you when you're dealing with text, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's so many ways that you have to go about interpreting this. I mean, depending on what kind of like a historian you are, you have different lenses, mm-hmm. you know, that you're willing to to look through, uh, to to observe the text and understand it. And I think that there is like there's a lot of uh, you know, of Satoshi's writings and works that are very like on the page yeah clear cut crystal clear yep but there's also a lot of things that are interpretable mm-hmm. and whether it's like a conversation between him and like Mike Hearn or something that you see Satoshi post in 2009 versus something in 2011 yep things happen things change people are supposed to change satoshi's a person right mm-hmm. we think he's a person you know we we think he's a person therefore he's someone who has the right to change so like what makes it difficult is like when you're going to like a fundamentalist viewpoint you're 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 interpreting the text as like literally as you can and what you know some things i can surmise from that are going to be issues of context just by the fact that you're reading it at a different time than it was written. Sure. So like, you know, a lot of the times, like I, I understand, I understand the fundamentalist approach, but these are just some of the things that, 
you know, not, not talking a technical aspect of Bitcoin. It's also hard for me to then be like, you know, if these are the fundamental truths, like that's, I just feel like always going to be forever open to interpretation and open to resistance and arguments. And it does something that I find really, um, ironic and interesting is that it just like shows you the humanity of Bitcoin. Like you were saying, sure. you're, you're, you're dealing with people who are post fact, post time, trying to resolve this, trying to figure yep. it out. And I guess like, that's kind of like where I see this perspective of like the change coming and the schism happening, mm-hmm. you know, from from your perspective, you know, I'll give you some time to kind of share your perspective as well. By all means. Um, from your perspective, it's like there, this was more of like a calculated war. Whereas as someone who's relatively new and like having the time to intake the information, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's like a dirty war. It's a war of, of a lot of ego in the sense that people had their arguments for big blocks, small blocks and why. Yeah. And people were willing to crush and step on the throat of the opposition to kind of make that happen. And I guess I just want to hear your thoughts on all this that's a so it's a it's a really important point to digest actually because you know a lot of people will make the point like i will i will criticize like the soft fork roadmap of btc mm-hmm. i think is deeply corrupt can we can you uh, explain why because a soft fork it seems like is like a, oh well it's a soft fork you know we didn't right. change we didn't hard fork we didn't change you know, and switch to a different protocol. So can you explain uh, the soft fork issue? Let's start by asking you a question. Yes. Is a soft fork a bigger change than a hard fork? I think like... Or is it a smaller one? I mean, ideologically, I guess it's tough. I feel like a soft fork is almost like... It could be relative. A soft fork could change more than a hard fork, you know, or vice versa, I guess. So in a consensus computing system, a hard fork is when a node or a group of nodes break a rule. And in Bitcoin, some some rules are are flexible and other rules are like if you go one bit over this limit, you have you have created a an alternate chain essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people a hard fork can be as small as a comma in the wrong place. But a soft fork can be massive, like massive, deep fundamental change to what is actually uh, occurring in the calculation of like, what is Bitcoin? Because one of the things that is happening in validations, you find like a validating node, its job is to check, uh, are all these signatures valid? Are they, are there any double spends? Is it like, is there an attempt at theft occurring in this block? But one of the other things that they're checking is, is does everything in here follow all of the rules? And the rules are things like total coin supply. Like did did this block contain Bitcoins that it shouldn't contain because this miner is trying to uh, add inflation for their own benefit? Like that would be a thing that would instantly be a like alarm bells everywhere and like be orphaned in, in, you know, 99 point six nines versions of reality that would just be the end of it and so what soft forking does 
is you're essentially taking a whole lot of code that takes your change, your change that would cause a hard fork. You're breaking change. A rule has been broken with your change and you have stuffed it into an envelope and the envelope says, don't break the network. Don't validate the rules inside of here. Don't worry about it. Just validate this as soft fork rule. That's a, that's a very oversimplified version of what's happening. Sure. But it's practically what's happening. It is it is the the sum total of what actually occurs. So, a soft fork creates a dependency in the network where when a legacy node, so let's say I have not updated my node to even know what that soft fork rule is, well, why doesn't my old node reject that that new rule? Like Bitcoin shouldn't have a new rule. A new rule means a broken rule. So shouldn't my legacy node reject whatever's in that block? And the answer is yes, it should. And the fact that it does not is because what a soft fork rule is saying is, is you're not allowed to look inside this envelope legacy node. Just trust us. Just trust the new node version because new node is good node. And like to me, <laughs> I can't remember the first time. This, for me, the first big one was RBF, replaced by fee. Yeah. And I'm like, just instantly like, well, this completely eliminates Bitcoin's usefulness as in-person money. I need to wait for six blocks. I mean, at minimum, I need to wait for one block, and that's 10 minutes. And if I'm buying a cheeseburger, I, we're already done. Like, it's just, you, I can't, well, here, let me pay you in Bitcoin, but I'm going to stand here for 10 minutes over a $10 purchase. You know, like, mm -hmm. I'm an idiot in that scenario. And it's because of RBF, which had all the techno, like the technocrats talking techno babble about why this is good for Bitcoin. Mm. And I'm saying, even if it was good in some way, the way that it's put through is really scary because maybe everybody loves RBF. Maybe RBF is a good thing. But in a few years, what if really terrible thing is really popular thing mm. and I have no practical way to resist it? I can't even run rules of the network that say, no, I reject dumb thing. I just lose because, well, it's a soft work. We wouldn't want to harm. We wouldn't want to risk splitting Bitcoin. And it's like Bitcoin exists to split when you disagree with new thing. Sure. There shouldn't be new thing. Bitcoin is the thing. And if hard money can change, then it is soft money. And if it's soft money, if there can be a ch if there is anybody who can change it, then you've immediately introduced the opportunity for political factions. And if you add political factions, you add lobbyists and people who have interest. And okay, well, if it can change, maybe I can change it to benefit me. Mm -hmm. And everybody will say, well, no, the Bitcoin community will never allow such a thing. <laughs> I'd argue you allow it all the time. I'm the Bitcoin community and I hate this thing that you've done. And I have zero practical response as a Bitcoiner to reject you. You tell me that I just don't get it. I'm not technical enough. I'm, you know, all these other things. And actually, um, you, you can read uh, recently Luke Dash Jr., who's a guy who I don't particularly like, but he tweeted about the problem of Taproot. He didn't like Taproot and Segwit. He helped implement it yeah. because he- I mean, he's like the- He's the driving force behind SegWit and the soft fork. Yes, but, but he explained that the problem with soft forks mm -hmm. 
is exactly what I just said. If you don't upgrade to the very newest version of the node, you're just a light wallet. You can't validate the whole network. And if you can't validate the whole network, why are you validating anything at all? And he's right. Sure. And I've heard, I've, I've read Mike Hearn's, you know, uh, uh, article um, on soft forks and it's a great piece, similar, you know, similar ideas as well. Um, the elusiveness of the soft fork and the wordage of it. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, like I said, I'm not much of a technical person and I, I just don't want to represent, uh, Bitcoin core in any kind of technical way. I guess from my perspective, you know, Bitcoin core people, people who, you know, appreciate what the developers have done, why are they just claiming that it's fine? You know, SegWit happened, you know, uh, Taproot's here, Ordinals are here. Mm-hmm. You know, the answer is always, well, if you don't want to run that, you don't have to run it. You can still validate you know the bitcoin blockchain like why why is that not the case i guess more than anything it's it's funny to me it just comes across as like you were kind of this warrior and a revolutionary thing but now you're just kind of like it's like i'm i have like a plastic gun on my hip because i want people to be like hey kurt's carrying a gun but like if i actually needed it like uh oh it's a squirt gun right and that's like that's my problem with it is it's it's very um and and i mean just be honest about it like everything i said isn't necessarily good or bad and like a philosophical standpoint but like people will tell me that i'm not telling the truth about it and that's the part that i find very very irritating and it's what leads me to believe that okay if this is the thing we're not allowed to talk about like why (laughs) like what's being hidden beneath this because like i've pointed out why it could be corrupt at least explain to me why it isn't and and then that's when the well you wouldn't get it or stay in your lane or you're just a shit coiner and then i'm like guys (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know like that's just you're writing it off you're being unfair uh to to the question and so it just it just bugs me. Why why is it not enough to have, you know, the developers explaining and you know, you have some of the brightest minds who are implementing these, you know, bips and these changes. Why are we just like I, I guess I guess it's so hard for me to I'm not a software engineer. I'm not someone who's developing an insane protocol like a Bitcoin protocol. I guess for me and for most people who are just looking to have the utility from Bitcoin, you know, there's a lot of, it's not even like trust. I think it's just more like when you have experts who are, who are developing and creating and, you know, bringing in brilliance, you know, and, and ideas, why is all that, you know, not enough I guess it's it's just like it's almost like you want to it almost just seems like you're taking that credibility and it's just like no it's not about that you know I guess I guess that's what that's where I have a difficulty grasping it is because then from my perspective you're just someone telling me that BSV is actually it and and it's it's because it's not BTC right you know like well 
First of all, I don't think I've said anything about no, BSV. no, you haven't, and I'm <laughs> and just saying like as an example, for like, sure. Like if you had some BSV developers tell me why BSV yeah, yeah, yeah. is is closed and perfect, and well, right, why do I believe that over like a BTC, you know, a Bitcoin Core developer? For sure, I think so. There's a couple of things there. I think the first thing is there's this presumption that the Bitcoin developers, that the guys that manage the core repo, are brilliant professional developers of some rapport. And it's like, well, some of them are, you know, some are actually very genuinely talented software engineers, but, um, but Bitcoin isn't just a software project either. Like Bitcoin is an economic system. And if Bitcoin is an economic system based on rule enforcement and the rule enforcement and the economics of the system are the thing that makes it valuable, then I think that's the most important thing to protect. Like you can implement all kinds of software that doesn't introduce breaking or non-breaking change. Like there doesn't have to be, um, you know, you can re-implement Bitcoin from scratch in JavaScript or Go or Rust, or maybe you can just do it in C++, but you just do it very different. Sure. Or differently. <laughs> and, um, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is people are creating a very deep redefining of what a Bitcoin is at a fundamental and economic level and telling you, well, you wouldn't get it because you don't get software. And that's that's really, really insane. That's like people call this gaslighting if it's in other contexts. Sure. And saying, okay, first of all, I'm not an idiot, so don't talk to me like I'm a fool because I, I, I can't code in C++. There's very few people as a percentage of the culture that understand C++ as a programming language. And those people are... are tend to be assholes when people ask them questions about it. Well, they do. And and here's the thing. It's it's a very different perspective. Like a lot of people that program, like C++ is like machine level coding. It's very, very powerful, uh, low level language. And the kind of people that are good at that are typically people that are, I don't want to say typically because I don't know the math, but there's a, there's a higher occurrence of neurodivergent people that are good at that, for example. It's like people on the autism spectrum. And so autistic people are very, very interesting, especially the high functioning, like math brain, like they, they really solve problems in very interesting ways. But what we know about the autistic people generally, like the thing that makes them autistic is the fact that they don't really understand human relationships and the incentives that, that mold human interaction and therefore their view on economic incentives is going to be fundamentally skewed. They can have an academic understanding of it, but they can't have a a deep personal understanding of it. So it's a little bit like talking to chat GPT about how do humans like money? You know, like to them, that's a very, well, what does the textbook say? And, And instead of intuiting some visionary, uh, uh, application where they could say, well, you know, like let's let's actually think about the game theory. Maybe I can create game theory that makes for better economics. Like that's not something that an autistic person is going to be capable of doing unless they they really, really focus on making that the one thing that they put tons of energy into. Because if they were good at it, they wouldn't be autistic. Like the nature of being autistic is that you you can't read other people's emotions and their their social cues and like that's what economics is 
Like economics is really hard to define, especially when we insert all kinds of weird variables and, and things that like, hey, now we're just in like Bitcoin is economic theory. Like it's not even just like, well, yeah, we just get it. Everybody gets it. This is like a weird fringe theory we're working on. And so to then go to a software engineer and say, hey, we need you to make a software change. Like that's one thing. Like that's what they're good at. But when they look at Bitcoin and say, hmm, why, why does Bitcoin not use an exponential curve to just make it crypt, uh, cryptographically secure in perpetuity? Why wouldn't we make it a perfect system? It could have been designed to never be double spent, but Satoshi didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Satoshi made it that all the nodes are competing. Every node has a chance. If there are 10 nodes, you have a one in 10 chance of building a block. And like to a cryptographer, that seems crazy. But to Satoshi, he looked at it and said, no, you need to compete. I want you people to compete to, to make a game out of the money. It needs to suck you in and make you say, I have to win. Because that endears something very differently than some cryptographer saying, well, of course it works. It's perfect. It was programmed using this, this curve. And it, so, so therefore it's like, so all that to say that a change in Bitcoin that changes its economics or changes something fundamental about it, like SegWit, for example, like you have Bitcoin is, is an unbroken chain of digital signatures. SegWit introduces an entire second Merkle tree and the Merkle tree uses a, a new group of crypto cryptographic logic to separate signatures out, replace it with hashed witness data that then references tree one and tr or, uh, from tree one to tree two to say, yeah, we know there's not a signature, but here's a hash that the other part of the, the new system saw the signature. So trust it. And like, that's, that's crazy to me. Like Satoshi in the white paper explained like a coin is an unbroken chain of digital signatures. Like it's, it's a thing. It's a very specific thing. It's not that's not one of the nebulous things about Bitcoin. It was one that has a very clear one sentence long definition that the software guys in charge of Bitcoin core said, well, you know, but Satoshi, you know, how, how could he know what we know at this point? <laughs> you know, and it's, mm. it's like, you can't change gold. Like we can't agree to just change the atomic makeup of what is gold. If we could, it wouldn't be valuable. And, and that's the argument that I make about that kind of change. So kind of like to put in a layman's term you're speaking more on you know philosophically what is bitcoin from the foundations that we have you know it's not about it's not about these these uh changes of software that could you know maximize the security of it you know from like let's say an, an engineer's perspective to be like this is why we did this to make it more secure you're just saying, no, philosophically, we are at a different point of what we define, you know, X, Y, and Z, and of where this all originates with Bitcoin. There's a lot of soft money in the world. Bitcoin claims to be hard money, like gold. But if Bitcoin is not hard money, then we need to agree, like we need to acknowledge that it isn't if it isn't, but, but having it be soft money while advocates and influencers and, and giant business entities and things are saying that it's hard money that never changes, like that's just dishonest. Mm -hmm. 
And and again, like we just, like, why can't we be honest? If everybody was like, oh yeah, 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 that's that's true. Bitcoin's whatever we say it is. I'm like, okay, I get like if that's the world we live in, like that's okay. But this is like I said, like I don't like the politics of. Well, what is a man? Like, well, there's a social definition to that, I guess. But there's also a, a scientific one. Like, there's a genetic definition for male. And, like, we those things can both exist. Like, they should both exist because they can both, like, those are true. There's a scientific definition for what is, like, male at a chromosomal level. But, like, you can project as a woman and and be a woman as much as you want and like both of those things can be okay but like we should just acknowledge that like you're genetically male and you do all these things as if you're a woman and like if we could have that conversation without like the right-wing people getting really really wound up about what is he saying and then like the left-wing people are getting really wound up like both sides of that are sitting there cringing and saying don't say it kurt what's the next thing that's going to happen and like what that indicates is that both sides are like super worried that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, and because it shouldn't trigger you. Like there should be like, okay, we have textbook definitions for for all these things. And if we can agree that like this is the actual definition, then we can just move on. Like it doesn't have to be political. Mm-hmm. And the more that you act like something is what it isn't or isn't what it is. Then it just it inserts all this opportunity for all this chaos, and maybe that's a good thing in in the halls of a philosophy class. Like if you want to go to a, like a gender studies class at your school, and like that's something that's really important to you. Like, cool, go do that. Spend your life doing that. Like enjoy your life. I hope that's awesome and fulfilling and all of those things. But if we're talking about hard money, if we're talking about that, like there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that the world does money today, and Bitcoin is a solution because it's hard money. Then we, then we do we need to own that and i'm just an advocate for owning that like as hard as possible own it completely i mean if we're not going to do it then like why are there celebrity influencers about like what is bitcoin like that is just weird rent seeking and i wish people would just admit that too well we're not trying to be kind of sending but where did you think it was going to go like, where did you think Bitcoin was going to go? Was it not going to be grabbed by the people with the money, the people who, you know, benefited from this other system? Are they not going to try to then get as much as they could out of it? I I did assume that it was going to happen. And I talked about the fact that it was going to happen. You can look at my old podcast material where I'm saying, guys, if we don't use it as money, if it's primarily an investment, it's going to open the door for people to regulate it as property instead of cash or get the SEC to jump in and start saying everything's a security, which like is the world we're living in now. And <laughs> the funny thing to me is I've been the one warning that this was a major risk and people, well, it's, too, it's decentralized. It can, that can't happen. And then. So is Ethereum apparently. <laughs> well, well, right. And then, you know, now we live in this world and I'm like, hey guys, all these things that I predicted were risks happened. And then, the, and then the people are telling me, no, it didn't. And so I look at those people and say, okay, these are the people that, that conquered it. Like this is the, this is the Vichy France government, or this is the, uh, this is the, the new ruler that's been installed by the coup d'etat telling me, you know, I'm, I'm speaking like wrong, wrong thing, right? Like I need to go to re-education camp and like get my laser eyes and like, dude, 
like Bitcoin's going to a hundred thousand and then it's going to a million and 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 that's it, dude. Like twenty one twenty one million versus everything. Like you know, like that like Kurt fall in line here. And it's like, no, I warned you this was going to happen, then it happened, and then I point out that happened, and all of you people are telling me that it didn't happen, which makes me think like you're either fools, like you're all fools or you're all malicious. And like we just we it just needs to be talked about. It deserves to be talked. Like Bitcoin matters, and so like people will tell me I like to 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 you know trash on BTC, and I say no. Like I'm still the only one defending it. Like I think it deserves to be this, and everybody's just telling me that that the things that I care about, the things that I've noticed happen, don't matter because you know. And I get people say this all the time. Well, nobody messed with the supply. There's still 21 million bitcoins, bro. <laughs> like what like why is it the only thing that matters like there's there's still a finite number of all kinds of things in the universe but like the, what matters is that they're predictable in such a way that they are useful for all of the other stuff that they're useful for well yeah totally and i i guess like to because you had mentioned you know is either everyone a fool or is everyone malicious and i think it's just like it's really complex with things like this i think people like you know, like Michael Saylor and my boy Saifedean, <laughs> um, you know, even Andreas down the line, a lot of people, um, Nick Batia, right? You know, a lot of these guys speak of Bitcoin from like an investment perspective. You know, hodl, hold your keys, you know, hold on to your, hold on to your Bitcoin, stack those sats, you know, right. it's in the podcast name. <laughs> a lot of these things are, you know, a different culture of Bitcoin that you see kind of like as Bitcoin becomes more mainstream. Now, I don't know if that's a matter of whether they're agent provocateurs <laughs> or, you know, whether that's just like the theories they came with once they were presented with what Bitcoin was, you know, in their perspective. But with that being said... You know, that doesn't mean you just blindly listen to the only thing. That's one thing about BTC that over the past year, you know, been in here three years over the past year, I'm trying to get more to just learning the software mm -hmm. of it and how everything works from a technical perspective because I truly do want to understand all these nuances and arguments. And I feel like I'm just not going to be able to unless I can have a better grasp of how that works yeah. myself. Because ultimately, I do think that the de decision comes on the individual, on each person. And it's not a matter of one is right versus the other is wrong. I think it's more just a matter of Satoshi didn't tell us what to do with the block size. He didn't tell us what to do with a lot of things. And what's that? done well it's basically done what anything happens once the profit is gone there's going to be sectarianism there's going to be schisms you know i see i see your perspective you know of, of like a more fundamental perspective very similar to the splitting of islam and where you have the shiites you know the smaller majority being the ones who are the prophets families who are like we need to keep uh, the caliphate within Muhammad's family, within the bloodline, versus the Sunnis being the larger majority are like, no, we're going to democratically 
elect the next caliph for the caliphate. Mm -hmm. So I definitely, you know, it has me spinning with like the moments of history that I find it similar. And that's why I just really been enjoying this conversation. I mentioned this to you when we were off air and I want to mention it on air because I do think it is important. Not only is it important to think for yourself and develop your own argument, but it's also important to work with people. And it's important yep. to get people and where they're coming from. And through this entire conversation and from my time researching your social media and what you present and speak on, I don't see you attacking me. I don't see you belittling me. I see you sitting here with me and we've spent, you know, close to an hour just having a civil conversation where I am intrigued by some of these uh, observations. I am intrigued by some of these concerns because Bitcoin is just another thing and it's a better answer than what we had before. But we should know as people who like history that there is no giant defining moment that's going to change something for good or worse. These are always going to be pragmatic problems that require pragmatic solutions. So I do think that your perspective of saying, yo, 98% of everyone all says the same thing about BTC. Can I just have my moment to address my concerns with you? Right. Um, so I'm saying this on air because I really do think it's important. I don't think that you're coming from a malicious perspective. I think that you're someone who has been watching this and speaking about this for a while. So I don't just see it as, oh, Kurt, the BSV guy. Oh, Kurt's lying about this. Kurt's lying about that. I definitely need to learn my own nuances on the technical side of it so sure. that maybe down the line we can spar a little bit more philosophically yeah. and intellectually. But I really just wanted to have this conversation go the way that it's gone. Um, cool. So far, you know, <laughs> I'm having fun, and and I appreciate you acknowledging that. Like, you know, we can like maybe me. I I actually don't even know your opinion. Like, you didn't tell me how you feel about mm. big blocks or small blocks. Like, you're just asking me questions. Mm. I don't know. think I. I don't think like. I don't think I have an answer. Like, I just yeah. don't know enough. I'm still learning. Um, you know, I read Block Size Wars. Sure. Um, I, I thought it was a good synopsis of how everything went down. I do actually have some aspects about big blocks that I would, you know, just like to hear your opinion on. Sure. Um, but I don't know which way I lean because I find that the arguments for both cases tend to be similar. They're both trying to say that if we go this route, we'll keep transaction fees down, which is what we want, and we'll incentivize miners to mine these blocks, which is what mm -hmm. we want. Yep. So I guess that's what's difficult for me because, yeah, fundamentally, I just don't have a strong enough conviction of why big block, why little block. Okay. So for my perspective, I guess I would say I'm small block because, you know, I do hold BTC. I don't hold any BSV. Yeah. Um, maybe that changes, you know, why not? Why not have, you know, every perspective open and keep your eyes on everything? Um, but I, I would say small block just because I, 
I guess there, to me, there is uh, ingenuity in SegWit and, you know, layer two, you know, I see lightning and, and some, you know, things as almost like smart contracts, ex extensions to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And for now, I still do see a pretty strong argument as to BTC being good, being utilized. I mean, it's used every day. Um, I don't know what the uptime is, but I don't think there's very much of a downtime. Yeah. Um, I can't really point to many aspects where it's been compromised and I don't think many, I don't think anyone can really. And I guess that's where it's like, I don't have a horse in the race, but I'm BTC because that's what I've learned and what I've gotten into, I guess. Fair. So here's, here's a historical, uh, perspective on it. So in 2010 and 2013, there were catastrophic bugs that took down the network and required rollbacks. Yeah. Uh, the 2013 one actually um, kind of breaks the... It's funny because people say all the time, like, well, dude, if you were to spin up a 2008 or, a, you know, a 2010 node client and sync it to... Which chain would it sync to? It's like, uh, it wouldn't sync to any of them. Like, it, it, it would think Bitcoin died in 2013. Because what happened in there was, is there was a, a bug that um, basically split the network in half. Yeah. And that's all well and good. Bitcoin has a mechanism to fix this. And it's the longest chain with the most proof of work is Bitcoin. And the one that isn't dies at some point. And, but that was not the decision that was made. The bug uh, was deemed too reprehensible to, to let the miners decide which is the right one. And the version with the short, like the shorter chain with less proof of work was deemed to be the good one just simply because it hadn't been upgraded. So it was seven, I think it was 7.9 versus 8.0 uh, Bitcoin core versions. And they literally like made phone calls to a couple of mining operations to say, hey, bro, like revert your software and mine this chain, please. And it was like pretty controversial. Uh, you can still read the logs. You can see like Gavin and Dreesen reminding everybody like, hey guys, like you realize we're like you're orphaning Bitcoin and arbitrarily being the decider as to what is Bitcoin outside of the Bitcoin rule set. Like that's a, that's a pretty dangerous precedent you're setting right there. Mm -hmm. And it was deemed like, well, yes, but it's the right decision. You know, and like maybe it was, maybe it was objectively the right decision, but it also introduces like, I'm a decision maker in this now, you know, like it's, it just, it creates that sort of ruling class of, of developers. I also think it's interesting. Like when people say, well, Bitcoin core developers are great. And it's like, dude, they've broken the network completely a couple of times. And then, uh, you know, so badly that they had to literally call everybody on the network. Like, thank God it was 2013 and there just weren't that many people to call, but they literally had to say, Hey guys, so you know Bitcoin, this thing that's supposed to be like absolutely battle hardened, like can't be stopped by the governments of the world. Well, I broke it, and I'm I'm asking you to just switch node implementations now and fix it, and like break a deeply fundamental rule of the network because I called you and asked. <laughs> so you know, so that it, like to me, I look at that and say, okay, may, like maybe that like is that objectively good or bad? Like maybe the decision was the right decision to make. I mean, it's it just brings up a bigger point. It's it's a centralization. So when people get the like, it's too decentralized. Like you can't stop Bitcoin. I'm like, dude, I can think of at least one time that you could stop Bitcoin with a phone call, 
And the fact that you can stop Bitcoin with a phone call introduces like, could I stop it with a phone call now? Like Foundry is the biggest mining pool in the US. And then Ant Pool like is Chinese, but you know, they've got offices in the US and the UK and they've got a lot of jurisdiction. And so like, look at it, like between those two pools, I don't know where they're at, but they're probably 50-ish percent of the network, but sure, between those two pools. And so what if they received a multi-jurisdictional court order that said, guys, like we're the proverbial phone call, switch to this version now. I mean, is, is Foundry's compliance department going to say, no, man, we're too decentralized to change? Or, or are they going to obey the court order? Or are they going to fight it in court? You know, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is we don't know and that there is precedent that you can change Bitcoin with a phone call. And so what does happen? So I just think, you know, uh, just to discuss the, you know, Bitcoin is unchanging and unchangeable is like, it's false. And so, uh, and every time you test it, like every time it passes the test, it gets more true, but every time it fails the the test, it gets more false. Sure. And, and we're on a continuum in that regard. Like I, in my opinion, Bitcoin has failed most of the tests that it's ever been thrown. Like in my opinion, every time that there's a fundamental change, like a thing like RBF or P2SH or the addition of CLTV or the addition of SegWit or the addition of Taproot, these are, these are failures to resist some political change. And like, (laughs) again, this is like the liberal versus conservative argument. Like you have the. Uh, I'll I'll bring up the trans rights things again to like, to that community. It's like, we have always lived in hell and we are not safe until we have all of these rights dealt with as a trans community. And like, maybe, but then you got the people on, you know, the, the conservatives in the situation say this, that, you know, this country was better before, you know, some nebulous before, right? Like when? 1500, 1600, like 1978, like what, what, when, when was the before that was, that was great. And, you know, and so again, like it's, it's politics and that's, that's fine. Like I like politics. I like political discussion, but if we're talking about hard money, again, like hard money is not supposed to be political. Like gold is the same. Like I could, I could take a a handful of gold and hop in a time machine and go back literally 5,000 years to a culture that I don't like don't speak the language, don't know anything about their culture. And like, there's gold in my hand and they're going to say, this guy's got to be a king or something, you know, <laughs> like, because of shiny rock. <laughs> right. And like, so there's like, that's important. And so like, we need to build that provenance. Like if Bitcoin is going to be gold or if it's going to be the, the global settlement asset or the base layer of, of global economics for the next thousand years. Like we got to stop changing it every couple of months. <laughs> so like that's a, that's a really crucial first step to actually having that conversation with any integrity. No, totally. I mean, we're five, six years into SegWit, you know, and very like it was from what I understand, it was wrapped together that once you have SegWit, you're then going to pave the way for Lightning and it's going to solve our scaling issues. Um, that was five, six years ago, yeah. you know, and we're still dealing with the scaling issue. Yep. Um, exactly. Those are some of the points that I, I do think you, you raise good concern because why would you just so blindly follow something and follow the narrative like 
I guess that that aspect has to do more with just like the like psychological group think, you know. Yep. Um people were wrong about, you know, Bitcoin until they thought they were right. And now, you know, we all think we're right and there's this one answer. Well, from my perspective of history, that leaves a very big open wound that could potentially be exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my opinion, it's just always better to strengthen the argument. And that has to be done through difficult conversations like this. And that's, so I want to applaud you for that statement too, because I've always agreed with that. Like I, I've been in so many groups, like I used to be in like the Reddit forums and all this stuff. I didn't use my, my real name. I started using my real name in Bitcoin stuff in like in 2017. But mm. prior to that, I was very like, I'm going to stay pretty anonymous. I don't want to, I don't want to be the idiot who thinks some crazy thing. And then like, that's part of my reputation forever. So I had like a learning phase where I was going to be. I'm going to be an anonymous guy. And then once I felt like I had a grasp on the technology, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to use my name and I'll advocate for something with my identity. Mm-hmm. And, and the funny thing is I've always said, uh, so I used to work in cybersecurity. I was a penetration tester. And that, that sounds super sexual. That's, that's <laughs> you haven't been tested till I've tested you. But <laughs> so the but what the goal is is I'm I'm basically simulating a malicious actor. Sure, I'm trying to rob you, and that's the that's what the company is paying me to do. So we'd get hired by like a bank or a hedge fund or you know some some big business that has some compliance issue that hey twice a year we have to see if we pass the test. Like, do you rob us every six months, you know? And um, and Bitcoin should be the same way. Bitcoin should be, like, it should always be in the crucible of not just ideas. Like, the ideas are good. Like, that's where things start. But also, like, it needs to pass some of these tests. It's, it needs to pass attacks, like technical attacks and economic attacks and rhetorical attacks. And you get all these people in, like, these private Reddit groups and, and on Bitcoin talk and stuff like, dude, you need to be willing to just, you need to be willing to die for Bitcoin. It's like, no, you like, you need to be, you need, you need to see if Bitcoin's willing to die for you because then Bitcoin's actually valuable. Like if Bitcoin falls over every time you blow on it too hard, like you probably shouldn't build the global economy on top of it. Like that would be a very, very bad thing if it cannot deal with a pressure test. And so it's just, it's weird to me that you got this like coddle culture in the closet and then you've got this like super alpha Chad nonsense and public, like, dude, Bitcoin can't ever change. Like we're like, all we do is eat red meat and all this other, like all this other stuff, you know, that is like, like, dude, I've seen you in the, in the private place. It's just like, oh God, I hope people don't find out about, this. you know, like there's this zero day exploit, you know, like this kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and it's again, like you can like pr- pr- even proof of work, like the proof of work ethos is like you either win or die <laughs> like every 10 minutes. Like that's what the mining business is, is dude, if you miscalculate a little bit and just for too long, like you die, that's what's at stake. Like, so that's how Bitcoin is asking you to treat it. And so everybody's saying like, Hey man, publicly we got to be you know, like just don't ever bring up like it's like weird mafia stuff. You know, sure. it's a little bit like, hey man, you don't ever talk about the family, right? Right. And like, yeah, I understand why 
you want to build a, a mob family that way that like we convey nothing but strength even when we're weak like that has all kinds of practical benefits and that's it's great and it's super dishonest <laughs> so and like we just we need to be honest with it if it's going to do the things that it's supposed to do like i don't want bitcoin to win if it can't deal with like mean things being said about it on twitter if it can't deal with that we can't build the global economy on it and i want to build the global economy on it like I'm an advocate for that. I want it to survive as much nonsense as you can throw at it. If I can't kill it with fire and I can't kill it with rhetoric and I can't kill it by trying to hack it and I can't kill it by social engineering you and, and lying about it and all, like if it just persists, well, shoot, <laughs> like now we've got something and that's, that's great. Definitely. I mean, I just, I just don't know if anything ever will be able to live up to that standard um what why global currency why not just bitcoin and a bunch of other things you know i find that that would be one potential downfall in my perspective is like i don't need everyone to use bitcoin i i just need it to work like sure. why do we want it to be a global finance so it's so it's a few things i i think I mean, it's like a political worldview. Like why, you know, I've, I've brought up like Christianity and you've mentioned Islam and some of these things. And like, why should we do missions work? Like why, why, why should we share anything? Why should, you know, if you think of, of us, like humanity, like collective of humanity as like a giant brain, like we're the collective intelligence of everything before and everything of now. Like, why, why should we talk? Why should we be friends? Why should we go to a bar and share a beer and like tell personal stories? Like if there's something valuable about our ability to interact, then there's something valuable about our way to interact economically. And if we can interact economically and do it really well, then I think there's more value there. So uh, it's an axiom that I came up with because it sounds good on a podcast, but I've always said Bitcoin wins when I can do business just as easily with somebody in South Carolina as I can in South Korea. Like if there's, if it causes me zero logistical difference, right? Someone's like, Oh, Oh, by the way, I'm in Seoul. And I say, okay, like, click, you're paid. Like we just, we just did business. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of value to that. There's a, there's a lot to unlock there. And it also makes me think of, uh, when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was the cable guy. Yeah. And him talk, such a good movie. And him talking about, it's funny because it's a comedy, but it's also like a horror movie and it's mm -hmm. like all these other things, but it's, it's actually like, it's a really seminal movie about like life in the, in the data culture. Like for him, it was cable, it was t cable TV. But when he's explaining it, he's standing on the satellite and he's explaining to, you know, Steven and he's giving this like, yeah, you can, you can play Mortal Kombat with a friend in Vietnam. And the first time I heard that, I must have been, you know, I was 10 or maybe less. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like, how the hell could I play Mortal Kombat with someone in Vietnam? Like, what does that even mean? Like, I knew what Mortal Kombat was and I knew what Vietnam was, but how do those, like, what is it? Like, can I go use the satellite? Like, what crazy thing do I need to do to play Mortal Kombat with a friend in Vietnam? but we live in that world now. Like I can literally go play Mortal Kombat trivially with somebody in Vietnam today because of like the, the stuff that we created. Now imagine if you could take all of the things that are great about the internet 
and you can take away all the things that are bad about the way the internet is structured. Like Andreas Antonopoulos called Bitcoin the internet of money. And the reason he called it that is because it's a it's a protocol that's been missing in the internet stack. The internet was actually designed. A lot of people don't realize a 402 error. You'll often see a 404, like if like, hey, where's my website? 402 error, if you can find one, is payment protocol missing. Mm-hmm. The internet stack has an open space for a payments protocol because the people that built it a generation ago now said, well, obviously you'd want to have an internet that interoperates or a money that interoperates with the internet. Sure. And so I look at that and I say, you know what? The thing that made the Catholic church not scary 500 years ago, 500 years ago, you could be like physically punished for not going to church on Sunday. And then all of a sudden the printing press was invented and then it became very easy for people to read. And then it became very people, very easy for people to read something that wasn't the Bible. And then all of a sudden you get this revolution of people who are like, hmm, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and, and people were stopping me from knowing that I could do whatever I want. And then within a generation, you know, I mean, now you see uh, commercials on TV, they're like, Catholics come home. Like, hey, wouldn't you like to come? We, you know, we, we do a lot of fun stuff here at the Catholic Church. And like, it became voluntary. So the church went to like, all right, time to the wall. We're going to throw some stuff at them and make them feel like physically punished for not coming to church. And now they're begging me to be to be a member. And it was just because information, the friction of information went from like way up here and it just went. Everyone can get a book. You can get a book for free. There's books right here on the shelf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like There's books everywhere. Like people ignore them. Not like about oh, books. Why are books interesting? You know? Mm-hmm. And like Bitcoin's that same thing. Like Bitcoin is 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 one of those major things in history that said like, hey, you know all this friction of doing business, like you got to fill out these forms and here's your wire information and your KYC and all this other like you can't do business with somebody in Vietnam to you know our kids. Like how cool would it be if it was just like, sh- like, oh, I just started a business in another country and I'm twelve and. You know, like and all these other things that you can do, like that's super liberating. This is this is when human experience goes exponential. Yeah, super important, dude. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. I wanna, I wanna, wanna ask you a hard question. <laughs> Hopefully, it's hard. I'm sure you've had this asked before. Jihan Wu, <laughs> Bitmain, mm-hmm. Coinbase. These were all big blockers. Bitmain, I think, put $900 million into Bitcoin Cash and supporting big blocks. Yep. You speak of big blocks versus small blocks. You know, you've mentioned that from the smaller block perspective, there was a financial incentive from certain groups and people who were looking to change Bitcoin and get something else out of it. Why, what's not to say it, the same perspective from big blocks when you have companies like Bitmain supporting and pushing and, you know, secretly and openly advocating for Sure. Um, so I think it's important to point out that it was mostly open. Like nobody should be like, nobody from the era was surprised to hear that, wait, Jihan's paying for like, 
he was literally like, I really like Bitcoin Cash. Like, I, th I think that that's an important thing. Yeah, he took over the company. He He's like, I'm CEO now. He ha this is right. what we're doing. Do the, the Bitmain coup? <laughs> like, I know people that, like, were meeting with Zahn and, like, they thought they were doing a deal with Bitmain, so they had dinner with Jihan. And then when that was done, like, the handlers were like, well, now you must go meet Zahn the CEO of Bit of Bitmain. <laughs> like, wait, didn't we just make a deal? It's like, you've made half the deal. <laughs> you know, it's like, this kind of like crazy Bitmain stuff from like that era. Mm -hmm. But, um, <laughs> so same with Coinbase. So Coinbase and Bitmain and a, a bunch of others. Yeah. Like they signed the New York agreement. Right. They like, they created it to make a public announcement of this is what we believe and why we believe it about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And we want everybody to participate in the conversation and all these other things. And like, I think that's the right way to go about, uh, you know, not being like a bunch of seedy lizard people. And, uh, I'm going to explain why I use the word lizard people in a minute. On the other side, you had like Blockstream and Lightning Labs and a bunch of these other people that were like legit being funded by like New York Life Insurance and MasterCard Ventures and CME and AXA Group and like all these old world finance companies, which I think is another important distinction. Like Bitmain and Bitcoin.com and Coinbase are Bitcoin people that had Bitcoin ideas. And the small blockers who claimed to be the real arbiters of Bitcoin ideas were literally getting old world, uh, like <laughs> old world financial titan uh, money to do whatever it is they were doing, which in my opinion is like a clear conflict of interest. And so the reason I bring up lizard people is that was a meme at the time and they literally turned it like there are official Blockstream photos of lizards taking customer service calls. And I, I've shared it a couple times on Twitter and people are like, dude, you Photoshop that. I'm like, dude, it is from Blockstream. Like they're gooning on you. <laughs> and so um, like, yeah, 100% there was corporate backing. But the, the fascinating thing to me is that small blockers framed it as that the big block version was the corporate takeover attempt of Bitcoin. Like to point at Coinbase and say, oh, there are the shady corporate people <laughs> while receiving money from MasterCard, New York Life and AXA, like some of the biggest insurance company, like the literally the biggest payments company, the biggest insurance company uh, and, and the biggest mercantile, CME is uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, so the biggest commodities house in the world. And so... Uh, like it's just like that's it's an amazing uh, study in propaganda frankly like how did they win that narrative war like how did everybody not say like hey man Coinbase might be the good guys in this and like MasterCard should probably be like we should double check why they're involved well how openly was all that known you know like how like I just I never saw any you know obviously I wasn't into Bitcoin then but I just never saw any like even hint of like a legacy company supporting or even openly speaking yep. of this. A, a lot of it is super scrubbed now. Mm -hmm. uh, like you go look for, like I have old links that I keep in files and like you go click them and it's like 404 error, like this doesn't exist anymore. Like we have erased the history and um, it, it's just, it's super effective and and funny because by its nature, the majority of people involved in the Bitcoin space are new because most people get involved when there's a bull market. And so most people that think they're Bitcoin people are, are new. They don't remember the last cycle. They don't remember the, 
you know, it's like talking to your, your grandparents about like, Hey, what was, what was world war two? Like, you know, it's like, well, I was 12 and they shot my dad. And then I lived in, like, I was a refugee for six years and then I ended up in, now I'm in this cold city in America, you know, sorry. And like, that's all like, that's a paragraph. But if you lived it, it was like, it was 13 years from the time that the Nazis killed my family to the time that I was finally like in a place that ended up being my permanent home again, you know? <laughs> and it's, you know, when you create distance from it and you act like, ah, you know, it didn't happen. It's fine. Like it, it just goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with like the news cycle and like, in, especially in the Bitcoin, like our whole news, like our global news cycle has become so like ADD chaotic. And then like Bitcoin's even worse. Like it is literally the worst of it is like, you know, information that's three weeks old is like, oh yeah, did I, do I, do we remember when that happened? Like just, it's, it's ridiculous, but it yeah. it was a conversation. So there was the split of the R Bitcoin and RBTC uh, subreddits. So a bunch of people got kicked out of R Bitcoin talking about big blocks. So the moderators over there were like, hey, big block conversations are not Bitcoin conversations. Get out. Which like already is like, it's a little nefarious. And then like the RBTC sub still has kind of a lot of this stuff, but a lot of it's been scrubbed there too. But they were having like the MasterCard debate. Like I didn't come up, I didn't discover this. I wasn't like the investigative journalist that blew up, you know, I'm not, uh, what's his face? The guy that blew up Watergate for uh, mm-hmm. the, the Washington Post. Sure. Um, it's going to come to me after I leave. Uh, Woodward, Bob Woodward. Mm-hmm. So he, um, he, you know, there was like a two and a half year period where like Bob Woodward is definitely a scammer conspiracy theorist. And then like end of year three, Nixon's like, I resign, you know, I'm out. And it's like, oh, Bob was right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the same thing over here. It's that Kurt, you're a conspiracy theorist. And it's like, I didn't come up with this. Like, this was information. Like, I remember it happening. And I just started talking. Like, I just didn't stop talking about it because it always, like, ticked me off that everybody just acted like it didn't matter. So um, all that to say, you know, when you ask, what, like, why don't I remember that? What, like, why isn't there more evidence of that existing? I think itself is at least plausibly evidence as to why it was nefarious sure like it's bad pr that you know hey we raised 40 million dollars in 2014 to create blockstream and our lead investor was axa insurance like who wants to hear that and so Mm -hmm. so you bring it up and like the response is is you roll your eyes and call him a scammer sure or you're out yeah i mean like obviously dcg is super concerning um having pubco mining operations in my opinion is super concerning anything that's trying to you know whether it's on purpose or just by how it's going about anything that's trying to take bitcoin away from the regular day person is just like immediately something that kind of like raises my eyebrow or alarms me that that's where this is all so intriguing (laughs) and apparently taboo yep and you know like the the real big thing that i want to take away from this and i i want people who are into bitcoin and you know whatever of whatever kind of you know version or whatever technology in general you know, whatever it is that you're fighting for that, or that you believe in or that you're interested in, try to remember that 
the statement history repeats itself isn't something one to be taken lightly or two uh something that will disappear and go away like no matter what the case is everything that's happening is happening because humans are involved that means that there's going to be a lot of different objectives a lot of different perspectives and I just would find it so disheartening and extremely tragic for people who are supporters of Bitcoin to not look at BC, BTC and just have some some sort of a debate with themselves. Why am I still here? Why do I still believe this? Is it just the money that you've accumulated through it? You know, is it is it really because you believe it's immovable? Well, like let's let's strengthen our arguments. Like part of what I wanted to do today was not try to tell you all these reasons why I think differently, but to walk walk it with you because I find the best way to create something stronger is to steel man something together. Yeah. Whether I believe it in in it or not, like I need to hear the best version of your answers because we need everyone to hear it so that everyone can then decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. This isn't about finding what's right or wrong. I know I know you say this is this is the truth and it's about uncovering the truth and history is about uncovering the truth and conversations like this are about uncovering the truth. So I just want, you know, everyone to be mindful that I don't have an objective in changing anyone's viewpoints in life. Bitcoin didn't come to me because people shoved it down my throat until I understood the things that I learn in life are learned through life experience and through my lived experience. And that's what I want people to take from this. Like, sure. I just want people to hear all of it. I want people to hear where you're coming from. I want people to hear where I'm coming from. I want everyone to have a say. And it's way easier to do this one-on-one, you and I, yeah. than for me to hop into a Telegram group <laughs> or to hop into a subreddit yeah. and try to go through this conversation. Because frankly, people are just difficult and very strong opinionated. And like you said, a lot of people just don't want to be tested and find out that they're they're wrong or that something that they believed in wasn't actually you know what they believed in yeah no i mean it's crucial i I think one of the things as a like a a rhetoricist is like epistemological self-consciousness which is like a really long way of saying like you understand why you believe what you believe Mm -hmm. so like enough to advocate for your own worldview which is why you know again at the beginning like I, i want to pressure test ideas like if an idea is a good idea, I shouldn't care who rips it apart. If if I actually believe what I believe, and I believe that it is valuable, even if it's unpopular, then I, I should want more people to try to to disassemble it. Because in the act of disassembling it, maybe they'll understand why that it's valuable, and then they will become an ally. And so if the sum total of people watching this interview is... Oh, that Kirk guy seems a little shifty. I better go read what Satoshi said about everything. Yeah. Or go go look at the history of Layla. Like, wait, did did uh, you know Henri de Castries 
decide to invest in Blockstream for nefarious reasons in 2014, the CEO of AXA Insurance at the time. Like, look into that. What, like, what did Henri de Castro did? I mean, is Henri de Castro an interesting, is, is he a person who has deep opinions about the direction of money and capital in the world? If he isn't, if he's just this innocuous guy who was like a CEO at some tech company before and he was a CEO at AXA for a couple of years because it just was part of his career path, then like, maybe there's nothing there. But what does he believe? Is, is he a monetary activist of some stripe? Like, go look into that. I, I hope people look into that. Who is that guy? Why did his company lead investment in this in this company called Blockstream? And what is Blockstream's objective? Have you have you read Blockstream's site? Have you looked at uh, you know what what level of contribution have Blockstream employees put into the Git, uh, the Bitcoin Core uh, GitHub repo? They're not every developer. Uh, in fact, they're not even a majority of developers. So you could break that down by a metric and say, ah, Blockstream's not even that influential. Or you could look at it and say, but who are the influential people on the, like, sure, a thousand people might contribute some code, but who's contributing most the most code? Like maybe one, maybe one big push into the repo is 30% of all the code that ever existed in Bitcoin. And so there's stuff like that. Like you, you need to like dig into it. So if, if that's the sum total of people watching this interview and, and both of us making them feel like a little uncomfortable about how much they do or don't know about Bitcoin, sure. Awesome. Everybody, everybody got more educated. Yeah. This is the, the DYOR bro. You know, when you, you know, go do your own research. You should. I really like, yeah, like, you know, I just want to keep stating it. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I have an answer here, but I think something really, uh, fascinating, interesting is reading Mike Hearn's emails with Satoshi because Mike Hearn is, he, he represents what you were saying earlier where he was someone who was extremely fascinated in Bitcoin from the beginning. So what did he do? Well, he just emailed Satoshi and asked him questions <laughs> yeah. and their back and forth is incredible. Um, you know, I, I even think there's some things I, I see Satoshi talking about where he might even be... Um, he might even be alluding to something like uh, segregated witness. Um, I think I think there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff just like from being here now and then looking back. Sure, you know, I think there's a lot of really good stuff just in general. Like Satoshi is pretty clear about the things he's clear about. Yeah, he he doesn't like politicize you. He just tells you why it is that way. And like, that's kind of like where I've learned that the tw 21 million is just a number that he picked. He could have picked many other numbers. He picked right. 21 million. He tells Mike Hearns, not really about that. It's about all these other things. Yep. Um, just reading the white paper, you know, obviously it's like, we should all know the white paper pretty well, mm -hmm. um, as it's like the first document that we have in all of this. Um, so what, what your perspective made me do you know, and I'll be honest, in, in a in a beginning egotistical sense of like, well, Kurt is wrong and I just need to actually research a bit because then I'll prove that he's wrong. Yeah. To just know now I'm like deeper in the rabbit hole than ever before. Yeah. Like now I understand why I need to know more about how computers work and how programs work because I just need to have a better understanding of all this. And ultimately that's 
where we all want to go if we're really into Bitcoin. Yeah. There shouldn't be a stopping point to how much you learn about Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the world and the existence of everything. Yeah. It's every single industry in the world is tied to Bitcoin. It's finance, it's game theory, it's computer science, you know, it's, it's literally everything. Yeah. So there isn't a point in your life where you learn about Bitcoin and you should stop learning. No, the whole point of Bitcoin is that you always want to learn. You always want to test yourself. You always want to build on top of what you know. So ironically from me, you know, hearing about you and watching, you know, you and listening to some of your arguments, it kind of just made me look at myself and be like, Flamenco, you're very new in all of this. Spend some more time learning because there's people who have just a longer length of of the time that they had to learn all this so just go back and spend some more time learning um which you know whether it was gonna you know happen on purpose or not it was just uh you definitely contributed to just me wanting to know more about bitcoin and polish my understanding of awesome. things that i didn't know about it's great and yeah i mean i don't even want to go into the rabbit hole of Craig Wright. Um, <laughs> I, I will. I'm happy to. Definitely. Um, I, I do want to, I don't know how much you're able to talk about the documentary. Uh, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> like I can't talk like distribution companies or the release date and that kind of thing. But uh, what I can tell you is, um, so I'm consulting it. I believe I'll get some kind of writing and or producing credit uh, and helping flesh out like what is, what is the whole story, uh, but 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 how do we also make it like you know two hours long and have it be digestible because like, you know you you could talk for six hours about like all of the predicate problems with money and culture and computers and all these other things that are like, you know some people might say well you can't even understand Bitcoin unless you understand this but right. so how do we how do we talk about um, the history of Bitcoin and a lot of like the questions that I raise in such a way that people understand why they're questions that are worth raising about Bitcoin and then also tell Craig's story and how Craig is interwoven into the Bitcoin space. And so full disclosure, I, I do believe Craig is Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, which is, you know, right there, the most controversial thing you can say in Bitcoin period. Of course. Um, like that's the, like, a bunch of people just hit the ceiling like, oh, this guy. Uh, but <laughs> they're like, oh, I'm going to kill Flamenco. What is he doing? <laughs> yeah. They, I, some, some people will, frankly. <laughs> so, and it's like curious to me why like, came hey, in. So it's okay to disagree. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so like Craig, Craig is all these fascinating things. Um, and he's also super complicated and like, I agree that a lot of the stuff about Craig's life doesn't add up. And what I think is is funny about it is that people assumed that this pseudonymous figure who is undermining like the most powerful and rich people and things in the history of the planet would just have some squeaky clean like version of what his story is and that it would just all wrap up in a perfect little bow that made everybody feel like, Oh, well that's all, that's all very easy. And, and that that would be the case. So like I, I always expected 
Satoshi, if he ever resurfaced, to be like a really weird character and have really complicated backstory issues and like, why did you disappear? And why did like why did you create it in the first place? Like, what is the context for all of this stuff? And you know, so Craig hits the scene publicly in in twenty like fifteen and sixteen were like the big years for the Craig Wright story. Uh, that's when Gavin, you know, goes out and says, "I spent time with Craig." I met Satoshi. Believer. Yeah. yeah. And and so, you know, and now we look at that in context, and like it was like two months ago, there's a bunch of people bullying Gavin, like you need to rescind what you said, and like there's just like these these witch hunt campaigns about like. Hey man, everybody must distance themselves from Craig. And first of all, that indicates something, like something political about that. Like if he was just a fool and his ideas fell apart on first glance, like there's a lot of those people in the world. I don't I don't care what they're doing. And so for some reason, Craig's ideas are very dangerous and must be stomped out and must be shunned. And you know, so that's that is an indicator of something. I'm not even gonna prognosticate what. But, but when we look at Craig's life, like the actual things that we know happened in Craig's life. So the fact that he owned, uh, you know, a government contractor, cyber security pen testing firm or a cyber forensics firm that got hired by military intelligence by the UK and Australian governments. Like what, what, what do you presume the history looks like of the kind of person that is given military intelligence, cybersecurity work. Like, do we assume they just have like a bank account at Chase Bank and like, you know, they just live their lives in such a way where they can be like, well, of course I can give an attestation of where I was at every moment of every day. And like, hey, this is crystal clear. And like, of course, none of my emails are forged or, you know, all these other things. So like when it comes down to this, like, oh, well, that email was forged and this was forged and this was backdated and all that. And it's like, okay, when... When you work for intelligence agencies and yeah, it's just like your presumption, like what are people's base presumptions about like what a CIA agent's life looks like? And then imagine that part of working in that, like, and again, this is not contended or contentious history of Craig. Like we know this is what Craig was up to in the era directly preceding Bitcoin is that he was hunting human traffickers and hunting gun runners and hunting basically terrorist organizations in conjunction with military intelligence agencies of some of the most powerful nations in the world, which means he was digesting their data and repurposing it, or that he was helping Lassiter's Casino, which was at, like the biggest casino in the Eastern Hemisphere, like figure out how to get offshore payments in such a way that was low friction and, and allowed people to make payments uh, that were instantly guaranteed, but also easy to send in and all these other things. Or that he, you know, transferred hundreds or thousands of patents in that era from his company that he started in the early 2000s and transferred them into, like, so, like, we have patent applications about blockchain. So, here's an indicator. Enchain, his, his big company that holds all these patents, is a holder of some of these patents that come from DeMorgan, which was his company before the Bitcoin era. And so, if Enchain is holding Bitcoin-related patents that were DeMorgan created. And DeMorgan was a company that was shut down in 2012 or 13 and had years of patent portfolio stuff about blockchain technology that precedes Bitcoin. Like right there, you know, we're looking at 
hey guys, the file date on this is is very old. Like these are all little predicate pieces of technology mm -hmm. that as he was creating them was saying, I should probably like, I'm gonna file this away and, and patent this. But I'm also working in payments and I'm working in cyber forensics and I'm working in fraud and accounting and all like, he was an accountant, like a forensic accountant for BDO, which was a major auditing firm. And so like all of these things that come together. <clears throat> and so for me, like all of the weird stuff about Craig, like all, like all your typical, like Arthur Van Pelt kind of articles about all the reasons he's a fraud, because here's, here's the, here's the wrong thing. Here's where he screwed up the check sums. Here's where he screwed up the, like all of this stuff. For me, it's like, prove to me that he was not doing cyber forensics and cybersecurity for intelligence agencies for those countries because everything else to me is irrelevant. Like there are very weird protocols that are not publicly known for how data needs to be used and digested and secured and destroyed if it had anything to do with part of an operation or part of operations that would be illegal if they were exposed. But it's okay because we got like the queen signed off on, we have to do this because we're trying to take down this terrorist cell or whatever, you know? And so start there, prove Craig didn't do that. And then we can talk about like, why are all of his documents so fishy? Because fishy documents are exactly what I would expect from somebody in that situation who built Bitcoin and then tried to disappear. And they got his email hacked in 2014 and got his servers burned down because he was being blackmailed by the people that worked inside of his company. And then the tax office tried to basically kill him. And then he was outed by Wired and Gizmodo magazine. So he's just got this massive like, oh, my God, all this crazy stuff I've been up to is about to come to my doorstep. And what does that look like? What comes to my doorstep? Is it the police? Is it it is it an is it another auditor? Is it an assassin? It, like, we, like, we don't know. So, like, you have ruined my entire life. Like, remember, he left his home forever. He was very happy in Australia. Like, he, let, he went and moved to London, like, uprooted his family, like, all these other things. Things that, uh, like, I know Craig personally, and I know his family. Nothing matters to Craig more than his family. And so when I think about, like, what he's had to put his family through, and, like, when he talks, like, even in passing... He'll bring up that era, like, because I need to ask him when we're working on things like the documentary. And, like, he can't even talk about it. When he talks about, like, well, and then this is what they said to my wife. Like, you you see it break him. I've, I've seen him cry in court. Like, he can't talk about his wife or his kids without being right there on the verge of those tears because of what he had to go through, because of what all of that turned into. And so the, is Craig Satoshi is like, I, I, I can't, I can't give you an answer. That's a sentence long. It says here, it's crystal clear, but I never expected it to be. And nobody should have expected it to be. And so working on this documentary to like tell that whole story in such a way that makes people feel like he is or isn't. And that isn't the point of the documentary for, for what it's worth. And we're not trying to convince people like, this isn't like, it's not titled Craig Wright as Satoshi Nakamoto. It's, it's a story about what the process looked like and how Bitcoin became everything that it is and why it isn't what it isn't. And, and that the human part of it, like telling the story of 
that this is the process because it's fascinating. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy interesting story and I'm super excited for people to see it. Yeah. And that's going to be releasing on Netflix or, uh, I don't know where it's going to be released, but it is, it will be shopped to one of the major, uh, streaming services. Awesome. Do you have any kind of an idea when that's set to be released or it's, so it's, it's, it's like a long political kind of thing to it, get it to that point. It, it should have been out already, actually. So the pandemic was a huge uh, problem because part of the story is being told through the court cases as they happen. So it's like a predicate of the story is like, how does the story end? And a bunch of these court cases are uh, related to, you know, what what is the ending even going to be? We don't know what the end is. And so part of telling the story with those court cases means that we're a little bit contingent on them. And um, so it puts a little bit of a question mark uh, on the exact distribution. Now, it's it's written. There's, I didn't even know, thousands of hours of content that's been filmed and all this stuff. But we're kind of waiting for these couple of things are just like on the whiteboard with got to happen first. Sure. Well... Whenever it does, you'll have to let me know. I'll definitely keep my eyes peeled and be watching that. Sure. Is there anything else you kind of wanted to address or say, you know, like? Um, it's actually the last question I ask everybody when they're on my show. Nice. So, um, not really. I mean, I could talk, I could talk about things like BSV and like why BSV. I think if if this is the only interview with me that anybody ever watches and nobody ever like talks about why why BSV as a Bitcoiner, um, for me it's it's simply that Bitcoin as it was originally designed deserves to be tested, and it really isn't anything more than that for me. Like, it's not some deep political reason or some financial, I mean, obviously the financial aspect of like being a BSV holder has not like endeared me any extra wealth or personal credibility or any of these other things. No, I mean, you, in fact, it's kind of the other way. Sorry. Exactly. Right. And so I would say like, you know, what scams look like years and years of a lot of financial and infrastructural investment to only make your reputation less popular. (laughs) So, um, but but for me, if if Bitcoin mattered the way that it was implemented and when it was implemented, like one of the things that Satoshi said to Mike Hearn was we can we can scale past Visa today with existing hardware. And if you give me a little bit of time, I can show you how. And that sentence always stuck out to me and say, like, well, no blockchain has ever hit those numbers to this day. I mean, we're. 14 years after he was this 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 was a sentence that he said preceding the launch of bitcoin nobody had seen it yet and so i just i've i've always wondered what that meant like where's the follow-up question mike (laughs) yeah because yeah because not only that but um satoshi gives a little bit of a of an answer as to how i mean Mm -hmm. from, from what i remember that quote he's he mentions you know just the efficiency of computers yeah. will scale this. Moore's course. law. Right. right. He, he mentions a couple of those things. And then a little bit later in history, he talks about like very specifically uh, the way that Bitcoin runs today isn't how it should run in the future. Like not everyone should run their own node. 
and and then he says, does everybody run uh, their own email server, basically? And you know, at the time, it was a lot more true than it is now. But he said, literally, it ends up in in big data centers and specialized uh, hardware. And I, he may have even mentioned GPU um, in that. He mentions GPU for sure in history, talking about scaling. But I think it's part of that quote, if I recall. Yeah. And um, and so I look at that, and and you'll get the people who want to like really drill into the fact that like, well, BSB isn't exactly what the original implementation of Bitcoin looks like. And that's true. Uh, and I'll call back to something you said at the very beginning um, or, or in or much earlier in the, this interview is that like, you know, the thing that sprouts out of the civil war, like it is imperfect. BSB is imperfect and BTC is imperfect and BCH and there's a bunch of other communities that really care about whatever version of their their bitcoin that they really like but <clears throat> that's the nature of surviving a civil war like this country still has scars from the civil war and like you can like we're northerners right so we're like hey man we freed the slaves and we like we won the civil war and like but you can go to a place in alabama and you can talk to people like here's another like my question before how do they teach the civil war in alabama it's a little bit different than how they teach it in Wisconsin. A little bit different, <laughs> yeah. And so, but but it's funny because it's not it's not inauthentic. Like they're being, at the very least, they're being emotionally honest with how they feel about that occurrence. Sure, it's you know like I I know Southerners who will call it the War of Northern Aggression. To this day, to this day, a lot of people in the South feel that way with it. And you know, as a as a young person from Illinois, I'm like or a Northern aggression. When, like, weren't you guys the bad guys? And then you talk to them and you realize all these other, th like all the political stuff that went into the civil war. And like, we get the one paragraph version, like, well, they wanted to separate because they wanted to keep their slaves. And like, that's not false at all. Like that is a truth about the civil war, but it was also this really complicated list of other things. I mean, yeah. When your entire economy is built on right. slavery you know, slavery was very much the crux yeah. of the historical side of the Civil right. War, but there's a million reasons why you're all Civil War happened. You're also asking for the entire region to live through generations of depression after. And what do large portions of the South look like today? I mean, the South is the poorest parts of America. I was just in Arkansas in January. Yeah. Never seen things like that in Bosnia. When when I go to visit my yeah. war torn country, you know that right. still has uh, grenade shells and buildings, I didn't even see that level of poverty yep. as what I saw in Arkansas in the South. I've seen the same thing, like driving through places like uh, Alabama and Georgia, and and it's just like, wow, th this is the country I live in, and it's it's like twenty states all in that that region, and. And so, and none of this is a criticism or an endorsement of any of that. It is yeah. just to say that there's a scar on us from that civil war, and BSV is an imperfect version of Bitcoin or an imperfect attempt at redrawing those borders the way that we wanted them to do the most Bitcoin thing the way that we see it. And it's it's the same as saying like, you know, what is Germany, <laughs> or or what is or what is Bosnia, or what you know any of these things. Sure. And, and it's like, well, that river used to be our river and now it's their river because some treaty signed by some dudes before I was born. And, and that's the world we live in. And those, those are the scars of that civil war. And so I'll finish by saying that 
not all truths are scientific, but they're still true. And BSV is that, that truth. It is this attempt. It's that saying like, look, like we can't erase the civil war that we went through, but principally we're trying to apply all of the reasons why we fought it and why we continue to fight it and why we think that continuing to fight it is what will give the most net good to the world. Like it's not some affinity scam. If I just wanted dollars, like there's a lot of communities that would have paid me a lot of money or given me a lot of tokens to be an advocate for, you know, crap coin X. Yeah. Let's <laughs> say poop coin. Glad we're on the same page. And and for me it's like it's it's a principle thing. And like it doesn't mean like if you're if you're interested in BSV or if you want to use BSV or if you want to try to use BSV, like like nobody's going to say like, did you sell all your BTC first? Like there, these are not thresholds that need to be met. Like you're allowed to spend like 10 bucks and get a little BSV and see if you like using the tools on it. Or if you have a business that would, would benefit from using the network in some way, like there's, there's nothing stopping you from, from just seeing, like I use Ethereum sometimes for some things I, I like, I use other blockchains because I find some utility or some pleasure in using them mm. and that's okay like we don't have to we don't have to live in castles and just throw missiles at each other all the time very well said i appreciate you for you know um doing this with me doing this interview in the way that we did um i tried you know not to have any not to have too much personal attachment to all this. I know it's a little bit harder for you since this is this is what you talk about in your career. But yeah, again, I really do appreciate you trying to just walk me through this and give me like your best answers for these, you know, questions that I think are some of the questions that need to be, you know, uh, brought to to the front of the conversation when we are going to embark on as uh you know a mic dropping of a conversation as we have <laughs> for sure. um it's been a pleasure kurt super happy to meet you thanks for coming on the podcast and i promise you i'll learn some of the more technical aspects of bitcoin and btc so we can come back and have a little bit more of like a technical spar sounds great looking forward to it and and i really appreciate you having me it's been it's been great is there anywhere that our audience can find you on social media or any any links? I am Kurt Wookert Jr. everywhere. So I'm KurtWookertJR.com. I'm Kurt Wookert Jr. on Twitter and on Telegram and anywhere else. I, I answer all my DMs. Uh, I get a lot of them, so sometimes it takes me a little bit of time now. Uh, I, I do a weekly live Q&A podcast on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern time, uh, the CoinGeek weekly live stream. So if, if you like heard something on this show and you wished it was being asked, like come ask in my troll box. Like I specifically like the hard questions and I like taking them live. And I want like, I just want everybody to know, like it's, it's about transparency and it's about being intellectually honest. And if I don't know, I'll frankly say, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just want to facilitate better conversations and more education and just like also have a good time with people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we can definitely align right there. Uh, definitely feel the same way about it all and i'll throw those links up 
uh, in the video so people have a way to reach you as well. Awesome. And once again, appreciate it, Kurt. For sure. Till next time.